Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Luke, and the praise team. If you have your Bibles open with me to Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 29. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 29 is where we'll be this morning. Matthew 7, 15 to 29. At some point in our lives as, as Christians, we all wrestle with the same question. Am I really saved? Am I really a disciple of Jesus Christ? It may be you're in the midst of a bout with sin, or maybe there's just a trial of some kind that just happens to be really difficult at the time. We start to ask those same questions. There hasn't been a Christian that has been a Christian for any period of time that I've ever encountered, myself included, that hasn't at some point asked that question of themselves. Am I really a Christian? Am I really a disciple of Christ? There have been seasons in my life, sometimes even long seasons, where I've wondered that very thing. Am I really a truly a member of the family of God? Jesus is closing out the Sermon on the Mount, and as he does, uh, with, uh, he does so with a series of warnings. He gives to us a series of warnings at, at the close. He begins applying the Sermon on the Mount to us. And he's, he's really warning us about what is true discipleship and what is false discipleship. What it really means to be a disciple of his What is maturity in following Christ and what is not? And in these warnings, there's really two main themes that come to the surface. The the first, as we saw last week, is that there are only two paths that you can walk down. That's the first warning that comes to us in the last paragraph, uh, uh, verses 13 and 14, is that there are only two paths that you can walk down. The first thing, that's the, the first thing that we, we talked about, as we said it last week, you're either in or you're out. Jesus gives to us a set of binary choices, choices that we often don't like. They're either black or white. You're either in or you're out. You're either the Apostle Paul or you're Judas. What does it mean to be a true disciple of Jesus? It means you walk down the narrow path. It means that you're walking down the path that is filled with affliction and that is fraught with pain and that you're doing so because eternal life waits on the other side. The second theme is going to come up into the surface in our text this morning. What are the signs of authentic discipleship in Christ? What does it mean to be growing in maturity in following Christ? And Jesus is going to offer us effectively the same warning three in three consecutive paragraphs in our text this morning. He's going to help us understand what true discipleship really looks like. So with that in mind, let's read our text this morning, Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 29. We're going to read all of it, and we're going to cover 28 and 29 Uh, the next time we're in Matthew at the end of this month. Uh, But for now, we'll just look at 15 to 27 as far as what we'll be studying this morning. Matthew 7, 15 to 29. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who, builds his, who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now you can see with really little effort as you move through this uh, passage that there is broken down really into three parts. You can see that there the, the first section starts in verse 15. The second section starts in verse 21, and the, the third section begins in verse 24. And in each of these sections, he's giving a slightly different but similar warning about what it really means to be a disciple. And in the first one, he warns the crowd that's listening to him about false prophets, those that look like disciples but are actually not. But in the following two sections, he addresses everyone. First he says, not everyone, in verse 21. And then he says in verse 24, everyone. So it's not just about false prophets. Really, everyone should be listening to what he's saying. So what we're looking at in this passage is not merely a, a, a lesson on what it means to be a false prophet and how to recognize one. Although the first paragraph is warning about false prophets, we should really be looking at this passage, this teaching of Jesus is a warning to all of us as we look in the mirror determining whether or not we truly are followers of Jesus Christ. So Jesus makes three points about true discipleship. First, he says this, true discipleship of Jesus Christ is not merely theological understanding. True discipleship of Jesus Christ is not merely theological understanding. The first warning that Jesus gives to us here concerns how you as a church evaluate a prophet, or more specifically, a false prophet. But as we'll see later in subsequent paragraphs, it's, it's really no different than how each of us are evaluated as disciples of Jesus. First, we have to ask the question, who are these false prophets that he's talking about in verse 15 that we should be aware of? The word prophet can have a variety of functions in the Bible, but to put it, to put it uh, generally, it, it, it's a person inspired to proclaim or reveal divine will or purpose. That's what a prophet is. It's a person who is inspired to proclaim or reveal divine will or purpose, right? 
He, he's there to proclaim what the Lord's will is or what His purpose is in a situation. Now, that definition would include people that are sent by God to reveal things about the future to people. Think about Jonah going into the town of Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He's telling them the future. He's telling them what is potentially going to happen if something doesn't change. But it also includes people that just speak on behalf of God. You have God, God's interpretation of events that are happening at, the ver- at this very moment. So this would be true of anyone that's speaking the words of God, whether they concern future events or whether those events are taking place right at this very moment. John the Baptist was a prophet, and his message was what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, he obviously told that Jesus is coming into the world. He, he foretold that that was going to happen. But it was both him foretelling the future and foretelling the current. So he's speaking from the mouth of God, the words of God, giving to the people the utterances of God. I think the term false prophet could certainly include people that are lying about future events. Think about the people that are telling you when the second coming of Jesus is supposed to happen, right? All called to the mountaintop because the mathematical equation that we've determined has given us this date. So we'll go there to the mountaintop and we bad mathematicians. We're firing all of our mathematicians. It didn't happen. We're bringing in new mathematicians, right? These would be considered false prophets. They're trying to predict the future. It's not coming true. They're false. But I think it could also include teachers in the pulpit who are abusing the words of God to make them say things that they're not saying so that the itching ears of the congregation will hear and respond in kind. Now, hear me on this. A false prophet is not merely a preacher that's wrong. All right? At least I hope not. (laughs) If that was the case, there could be no preachers that weren't false prophets. Because at some point, every preacher is wrong on something. Whether he knows it or not. Every last preacher that has ever stood behind a pulpit has been wrong on something. A false prophet is someone who is bringing in destructive heresies. Or perhaps undermining the very person and work of Christ. Now I get that from 2 Peter 2 chapter 1 where the apostle Paul uh, apostle Peter actually defines a false prophet essentially just like that. So you can write that down, you can go to it later 2 Peter 2:1. But look at how Jesus describes this person that he's talking about. This specific person he's talking about. He says, "They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." In other words, they have the appearances of sheep. They look like sheep, they talk like sheep. They they have they know all the buzzwords that sheep use. They know how to pass the sniff test. They can probably give you a great testimony of how the Lord has impacted their life. They can probably do all of those things, but their earnest desire is to fleece the flock of God. Inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. They desire to destroy you. They want to kill you. They want to lead you down the wide path that leads to destruction. They want to feed off the sheep, which sounds incredibly dangerous, right? So Jesus follows this up by telling us how we can recognize 
these false teachers. So how is it that we recognize these kinds of people so as to not let them in our churches? Jesus tells us, you recognize them by their fruits. So you get the picture that Jesus is painting here. He's saying that this person's character, the works that he does, are consistent with someone that is walking down the path that's wide as opposed to the path that's narrow. But, but not only that, he is a false prophet or a false teacher. So he's not only walking down the path, the wide path, he's leading other people down it. He's encouraging other people to disobey Christ as well. It's about obedience and disobedience, really, ultimately. I think I should mention here that I'm not sure that Jesus is talking about every false teacher. I'm not sure that he's saying that every false teacher is going to do exactly this. That they're all cut from the same cloth. That they're all going to respond this way. That they're all going to try to walk into the, the, the congregation. They're all going to try to be preachers in the Christian churches. I'm not sure that he's saying all false teachers are going to try to do exactly this. But that there are some that will come in and will do exactly this. And the reason I say that is because there are some false teachers whose doctrine is flat wrong. The church recognizes it. They're not welcome in the church. But also, their lives aren't categorized by blatant disobedience to Jesus. That you would even recognize that there are people, we probably, you probably know some Mormon families, these might be objections in your mind. People that you know whose doctrine is flat wrong. The, the doctrine of the Mormon church is not only wrong, but it, it, it's, it leads its adherents to hell. The theology of the Mormon church is absolutely wrong. But some of the people that you will meet that are in the Mormon church but honestly believe their doctrine. I don't think they're intentionally trying to lead you to hell. Or that in their mind is this thought, yes, this is what we're going to do. I don't think that's what they're mainly thinking. You see their behavior? They're giving people, they're loving people, they're joyful, they're peaceful, patient, kind, some of them, and yet they too are false. I don't think he's just talking about every false teacher, but a, a certain kind that will also cloak themselves and come into the church, and you need to learn how to look for these people too. It's not just about doctrine. I think Jesus here is really opening the eyes of his disciples to consider that it's more than just doctrine. That you must look beyond the words of the preacher too. He's saying there's some that are going to come to you and they're going to intentionally try to take advantage of you. Now there are plenty of false teachers that come along that you don't have to wait for fruit. I think the Mormons would fall into this category. You don't have to wait for fruit. You can spot the false teaching a mile away. There are many prosperity gospel teachers and preachers, the Joel Osteens of the world, the Joyce Myers of the world, the Creflo Dollars of the world, where their so-called gospel is strictly a promotion of health, wealth, and prosperity. And so the bad fruit that you can see, you can easily observe, is that their doctrine leads people to hell. That's the bad fruit. I don't care how nice they are. Their, their doctrine leads people to hell. They've enticed people into this belief 
that God is in the business of exchanging material earthly blessing in exchange for good behavior. The more good behavior that I give to God, the more He's going to give to me all kinds of blessings. So then, if that's your belief, what do you do to the person who's been faithful and obedient to Christ and at 50 has terminal cancer? What's your response to that person? What about the person in the middle of Africa that has disease and plague everywhere they turn and yet they're faithful to Christ? Does he not love them? Is he not exchanging their obedience for material blessing? It's heretical. It puts you in the place of Job's friends. I don't think anybody wants to be Job's friends. But it puts you in the place of Job's friends when you have that kind of doctrine and you look at the person who's 50 and has terminal cancer. What are you going to say to them? Well, you must have done something wrong. You had to have. Well, I didn't, but you had to have. Don't lie to me. I know you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Right? You're in the place of Job's friends. People like this aren't teaching the gospel. And so they should be avoided at all costs. You don't have to wait to see their fruit. It's evident in their teaching. But there are others who are not so obvious. I think Jesus is cluing us into a certain type of a false teacher, one whose false doctrine is not so easy to spot. They've been theologically trained, their words are buttoned up, and but, but the, has their doctrine actually impacted their life? That's the question, that's the litmus test. Has their doctrine actually changed the way they believe, the what they do? If not, then they don't believe it. But this isn't just for false, for, uh, false teachers. This is also true of people in the pew. This is true of every one of us. Here in the West especially, we tend to think that biblical knowledge equals holiness. And it simply does not. That the mark of a true disciple is the one who has all of his theological ducks in a row. Man, he's got all the answers. He knows every single scripture that you could possibly throw at him. He must be spiritually mature. And it's absolutely not the case. So we make the marker of spiritual maturity the amount of things that we know about the Bible. Consequently, we will attend a hundred Bible studies throughout the week. We'll listen to nothing but Christian radio and podcasts Every single day. 14 sermons a day if they have them available. And we evaluate the sermon based on how many new things the preacher gives to us. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Well, that was a good sermon because he gave me something that I didn't know before. He enlightened me to something I'd never heard before. And that's how we evaluate the sermon. And yet Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, not Bible facts. Now, growth as a disciple of Jesus Christ should never be devoid of a desire to know more and to go deeper. I think you know me by now. I desire that. I want that. So I'm not saying that we should just throw out all theology, just abandon it altogether and never try to learn any more things because that's the road to hell. That's not what I'm saying. 
But just like it's possible for you to have your theology buttoned up and be a false teacher, it's also possible to, ha- to study the Bible and to love to study the Bible and be a false disciple. Has all of that Bible knowledge made your speech more seasoned with love, with joy, with peace, with patience, with kindness, with goodness, with faithfulness, with gentleness, and with self-control? Scroll through your Facebook feed. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying scroll through your Facebook feed. It's stream of consciousness of the last 10 years of your life. Does it reflect a person that loves Christ and loves his neighbor? Has your Bible knowledge made its way to, being, to producing fruit in your life? The fruit of the Spirit. Has the study of the Bible put in you a desire to teach others, to make disciples, to teach others to obey all that Christ has commanded? Ask yourself, what should the Word of God be producing in my life? Ask yourself that question. What should the Word of God be producing in my life? And then follow that up with the question, is it? Is it? Is it producing that? I would encourage you. Take a friend out for lunch this week and just ask them. A friend that knows you well and has known you for a long time, ask them, can you see the fruit of the Holy Spirit produced in my life over these many years that you have known me? Ask your spouse. They will for sure be able to tell you. <laughs> True discipleship of Jesus Christ is theology transforming hearts. We should expect it of our teachers and we should expect nothing less of ourselves. The second thing I want you to see is that true discipleship of Jesus Christ is not merely supernatural experiences. True discipleship of Jesus Christ is not merely supernatural experiences. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the scene shifts just a little bit into a warning about coming judgment and how this person is going to feel on judgment day. And so here we have what I think is this same uh, prophet, this same example of the false prophet that he's got here in the first paragraph, transfers over to the next paragraph, and there he is before the throne of Christ. What is the fruit that he's claiming? What's the fruit that he's claiming? What is he offering to Jesus Christ on judgment day? Lord, look at all the spiritual experiences. In your name, I have cast out demons. In your name, I have told others your words. Look at how many works of spiritual might there are. He's pointing to these lofty supernatural experiences as if to say, See? These are evidences that the Spirit is at work in my heart. Look at all these things that I've done. I think for most everyone in this room, myself included, this is one of the most terrifying paragraphs in the entire Bible. Who wants to close their eyes in death 
and then open them to see the glory of Christ, only to hear him say, depart from me, for I never knew you. I don't think anybody in this room wants to hear that. But it, would, it wouldn't be a very great strategy if we just read this paragraph, we got chills down our spine, and then we walk away crossing our fingers hoping that that's not us. Hope is not a strategy. Right? How do we know that we're not in this category? Well, twice, Jesus gives the markers that identify the kind of person that he's speaking to in judgment here. First, he gives his audience a clue to what kind of person he's talking about when he says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, the second time, I think he's referring to obedience. He said obedience first. It's the fruits that are produced in obedience to my Father who is in heaven. Then at the very end of verse 23, he calls this person a worker of lawlessness. So he's talking here about someone who's so wrapped up in the supernatural experiences and is using those as evidence of his belonging to the community of faith. These must surely be evidences of the Spirit of God alive and well in me. However, this person is ignoring gaping holes of disobedience in his life. It's the one who does the will of my Father, Jesus says. And the response from this person is, but, but look at what I've done for you. Look at what I've, I've done for you. Look at what the Spirit has done through me. Jesus responds, yeah, but you're a disobedient fool. Can truly supernatural experiences happen through unbelievers? Think about that question for just a second. Can truly supernatural experiences happen to and through unbelievers? Yes. Remember Acts 19? You remember Acts 19? It says that the Spirit is working so mightily through Paul that even his handkerchief is healing people as it touches them. There's a handkerchief that's healing people and casting out demons. If you keep reading in Acts 19, you remember the seven sons of Sceva? You remember this story? The seven sons of Sceva? Probably one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. These people are going around and they're not believers and they're casting out demons. The text calls them itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now the experience that happens in Acts 19 is not a success, okay? The demon-possessed man jumps on these seven sons and beats them till they're bleeding and naked and running out of the church, out of the out of the house. It's not a success. But I'm assuming that because Luke calls them itinerant Jewish exorcists, they've done this before. That they've probably been going around and they've had some success. I doubt this is their first day on the job. It's a bad first day if it is. But I doubt it's their first day on the job. They've been doing this. The Spirit can work through whomever or whatever it chooses. He chooses. But here this guy is presenting to the Lord the works that the Spirit has done through him as the ground for acceptance in the kingdom, much like a legalist would. In spite of the fact that he's devoid of Christ's righteousness. I can think back over my life 
And I can see times where the Spirit was working in power through me. Times where approaching a group of, of five teenagers and sharing the gospel and all of them come to Christ. Or times when I was in the middle of a worship service and feeling that connection to the Lord. You all know what I'm talking about. A time where you, you feel as though you're the only one in the room that you're singing directly to his face. Times of, of teaching where the people that are hearing are growing and responding. Surely these are proofs. Surely these are evidences that I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus could easily define discipleship in these terms if he wanted he could have said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who goes on an overseas mission trip every year. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who cries when they sing Amazing Grace, my chains are gone. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who has seen many people come to know Christ because they have shared the gospel with. We've all got spiritual trophies. Every single one of us has spiritual trophies. Things that we can look to and say, see? Maybe it's consistency in Bible study. Maybe it's consistency in prayer life. I'm not the only one. Feels pretty good. Three months in, you're like, hey, I'm doing pretty good with this thing. Right? Yeah. We read the Bible every year together as a church. We have a Bible reading guide that is there, and it's, it's literally got a checkbox. Literally a checkbox next to your reading for that day. That can become your spiritual trophy. Look at all these checkboxes. Lord, did I not read the Bible through in a year in your name? Did I not do this? True discipleship of Jesus Christ is not merely spiritual trophies. It's more than supernatural experiences. Last, true discipleship of Jesus Christ is in everyday obedience and repentance of sins. It's everyday obedience and repentance of sin. Look at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does, does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat, it on the house, beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who, who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against it. And it fell and great was the fall. Now what words... Is Jesus talking about here? What words of mine? He says, here's these words of mine. These words of mine. What is he talking about there? I think he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount. Now, surely all the Bible fits into this category, these words of his. Surely that's true. But I think specifically in this sermon, he's talking about the words that he's just spoken in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just wrapped up what is for us three chapters of this study that we've been going through where he's expounded on and explained to us what the fulfillment of the law of Moses is. Plus, he's taught us what righteousness is, what true righteousness is, and what it is not. And in so doing, he has set the bar incredibly high. Right? We've not felt that 
in chapters 5 to 7, we've seen the bar for righteousness according to Jesus' standards as incredibly high. How high? Well, at the end of chapter 5, he says, there, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's how high. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty high. And then he goes on to critique the common understanding of the law of Moses in chapter 5, where he says, You have heard it said in the days of old that you shall not murder, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Ho! And chapter 5 doesn't get any easier from there. In fact, it gets progressively harder. Needless to say, the bar is incredibly high, and I would say impossibly high. What some will do when they read the Sermon on the Mount is they'll say, well, surely Jesus didn't mean all that he said here. Uh, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? Really? Come on. Come on. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? I mean, that's impossible. So surely Jesus was, was, must be being facetious or may, maybe he was being hyperbolic here. Maybe. Surely he had to be. The truth is, no. He's demonstrating what the actual standard is for entrance into the kingdom of God. Here's the standard. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Let me tell you what that means. This is what I'm talking about. Oh, oh. it's required of all that desire to enter. This, I think, is the first step to step to the gospel is realizing that you have a problem. I have a problem. Because the standard of righteousness, as Jesus has laid it out here in three chapters, is too high for me to attain. No amount of work is going to produce that. I can't do it. While we see this in the Sermon on the Mount... We also have to go back to the angel's words to Joseph at the beginning of the book. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Yes. So as we prepare our hearts for the celebration of the advent, the arrival of Jesus, we have to keep these words in mind. They need to be ever at the forefront of our mind. He came precisely because we cannot achieve the righteous standard that He has laid out for us. But the advent, the arrival of Jesus actually means something for humanity. It meant that He was coming to live that standard of righteousness. He was coming to do exactly that. He wasn't merely being a good Jew. He wasn't merely being a good Jew, one that observed the law of Moses. They had plenty of people that had done that and that were doing that. In spite of the words to the Pharisees of them being hypocrites, they were widely revered. They followed the law to its letter. He wasn't coming to merely be a good Jew. No, he lived the law that the law of Moses was pointing to. He lived the law of heavenly righteousness. He lived perfect heavenly righteousness here on earth. His heart never strayed into a lustful thought. 
Think about that for a moment. Not, not merely adultery, but his heart never strayed into a lustful thought. He never, never in his heart did he hate his brother, much less murder him. He never wanted others to take notice of his righteousness for the building up of himself. He lived out perfectly, down to the heart level, the words that he taught us in Matthew 5-7. to But instead of the rewards for his righteousness, he bore the wrath of God on the cross, which you and I deserve. So instead of gaining those rewards, he goes to the cross and he takes there the wrath of God. And his offer is to those who for the, is to us the rewards of his righteousness. That's what we're gaining by believing on his name. We're gaining his rewards. They're given to us. So, in other words. In the, math, in, in the words of Jesus in, in Matthew 4.17, we must repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We must repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent of my lifestyle, my works of righteousness, and give them over to the Lord. Or in the words of Paul to the Philippian jailer when he asks, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas tell him, believe in the, in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's repentance and belief. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can enter the kingdom of heaven because only he has fulfilled the righteousness that God demands. So when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. That's what's required. Well then, well, can't we just go on sinning then? Since Jesus has already done this for me, can't I just prop my feet up and just relax about the whole righteousness thing? Jesus then commands us to build our lives on these commands of his. Now, but don't misunderstand. When you obey Christ, if you are in Christ, when you obey Christ, you're not earning your salvation. Christ already did that. You're not obeying so that you will be saved any more than you do the works of a husband so that your wife will marry you. She's already married to you. She can't get any more married. You are obeying because you are already saved. Just like you obey your wife because you're already married. Men? Can I get an amen? <laughs> because righteous works built on the foundation of Christ's righteousness can actually stand up. Think about that for a second. Righteous works built on the foundation of Christ's righteousness can actually stand up. They actually please God. Your righteous works, if you are in Christ. But righteous works built only on your own righteousness will not hold up in judgment. The foundation, the very premise of those works is all wrong. They could be the same works. You and I could both give to the poor. But if you're in Christ and I'm not, I'm building it on a house of sand. 
You're building it on a rock. There's no foundation. Paul tells us without faith it's impossible to please God. The premise is all wrong. So what does that mean we should do? First and foremost, trust in Christ for righteousness for your salvation. That's a no-brainer. But then, fight every day to please God through steady obedience to Christ as He's instructed us to be. And repentance of where we fall short of that. What Christ is laying out there in the Sermon on the Mount about lust, that defines adultery for us. What he's, what he's laying out about murder, that defines murder for us. Hatred of our brother. Not simply killing him, but hating him in our heart. Let that define righteousness. And as you fall short, repent of that. And don't forget that repentance, asking the Lord for forgiveness of sin, is part of the words of Christ that we're building our life on. That's what he told us to do. Because true discipleship of Jesus Christ is not defined by my ability to spout theological knowledge. Nor is it defined by occasional experiences of supernatural power or trophies that we collect. But by everyday faithful obedience to Christ's words and repentance of sin. So you understand that Jesus' message here is a word of warning to two kinds of people. You and I are tempted at any moment to be one of these kinds of people. The first is the legalist. The legalist points to all his moral achievements, all his reasons why God should let him into heaven. Lord, did I not go out and share the gospel with all my co-workers in your name? Did I not do that? This guy isn't building his house on Christ's words because he's not hearing the level of righteousness that is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not hearing that. The other person is the free grace guy. That guy that would just rather ask for forgiveness than permission. We all know that guy. Maybe we are that guy. The guy that, unlike the legalist, he understands the bar of righteousness is too high for him to achieve. But then he simply looks at what Christ has already provided for him and he puts up his feet and he just says, well, Christ has already done it, then I can do whatever I want. What's the point? And he goes and he takes the commands of holiness as hyperbole. He's just exaggerating. He doesn't really want you to be perfect. This guy isn't building his house on Christ's words either because he misunderstands what kind of faith saves and the Bible is very clear on this. The kind of faith in Jesus Christ that saves is the kind of faith that has a new and radical devotion to personal holiness. As, and as we talked about last week, the kind of holiness that actually impacts other people. A radical devotion to the Lord. A radical desire to seek His will for their lives. A faith that results in works. Jesus' words to both types of these people is repent. Repent of thinking your righteousness is anything other than filthy rags. Repent of thinking that your righteousness is optional. Repentance of sin, so turning from these sins and turning toward the Lord is the cure-all because it's the recognition of the sinful state that you're in. 
And it asks the Lord to fill you with a desire for His righteousness. That's where we need to live as people of Christ. As true disciples of His. That's where we need to live. In between those two polarities. That I pursue righteousness with everything that I have. I repent of my sin. Understanding that it's only by Christ's righteousness that I have anything that I have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We know that we fall so short. We know that every single one of us have fallen short of your glory. That there's nothing within us that makes us worthy of heaven. We know that it is by Christ's righteousness alone that we have what we have. At the same time, we feel an immense pressure and confusion. That on the one hand, we must live lives of holiness. And on the other thing, on the other hand, they don't earn us anything that we don't have in spades in Christ. So I pray that you would keep us from either of those poles. Lord, make us as a church people that fall on the feet of Christ. That give to him all the praise and honor and worth that he is due in our worship. Understanding that it is by his grace alone that we have what we have. That we have salvation. At the same time, make us people that strive toward holiness. That hold others accountable to that standard of holiness that you've set for us. And desire others to hold us accountable of that same standard. We don't want to be hypocrites. Please remove the spirit of hypocrisy from our church, from our lives as individuals, from us as dads, from us as moms. We don't lead our families even in spirits of hypocrisy. But in true, everyday, faithful obedience and repentance, Lord, make us those people. Allow us to live the kinds of lives of holiness that, that touch other people so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.